0: This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com nascar pole position is the only print magazine covering nascar officially licensed by nascar nascar pole position magazine is published throughout the nascar season and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography for a little behind the scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand. Pipe wrench and channel lock pliers. And they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. Wasn't so, the first steel they built, I bet. No, <laughs> no you know, you, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before but paint had worn off. <laughs> cars, and there were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears, but then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him, and it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken, and so he ran off the boat, <laughs> and actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy still when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed bar wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Seen Bolt Podcast.
1: With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice,
0: Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history, presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. I said, I'm in the upper 1% of what we do in this sport.
3: I go, I'm never quitting. He laughed. He goes, oh, you will. He goes, and what's sad? You don't have a plan. It was about developing other people to be better. And as a team, as a group of people working towards a common goal, we got there. Well, if you can distract the guy, they swap the carburetor and stick the illegal carburetor on, right? And then seal it.
1: The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR, forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future.
0: Hello everyone, I'm Steve Wade and my name is Rick Houston and welcome to the scene vault podcast presented by Las Vegas motor speedway, America's racing show place and a track that truly cares about NASCAR history. Steve, I love opening these 1991 tracks packs and trying to find that perfect rookie card of yours. So you know what, let's go ahead and do that now at the top of the show. I mean, sure. I can't wait to do this. <laughs> Why not Rick Power away? <laughs> Rather than at the end of the show. All right. So here we go. We got another pack. Let's get it open. All right. Tony Fur, Terry Labani has been okay. on the show. Elton Sawyer, Patty Moise, Greg Moore, Leo Jackson, Beanie Ertel, Cecil Gordon, John Malloy. David Eft. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. And if anybody is a Seam Vault alumni, it would be David Ift, <laughs> <laughs> Eddie Wood. Dun, 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 dun. Steve kidding. Wade, baby. All right. All <laughs> right. Oh, oh. Let me get out my little case, and I'm going to open this up. Yes, we got a Steve Wade. Look All at right. that.
2: History is
0: made. Yes. Now, I don't think that it's going to be a PSA 10 because it is off-center just a little bit. So what does that make it, a PSA 9? Well, it depends on what kind of mood the the grader is in or whatever. But, yes, we've got one Steve Wade rookie card, and it would not be a PSA 10 because, like I said, it is off-center. But, anyway, Steve Wade rookie card.
1: Now, what again is a PSA 10?
0: A PSA 10 would be a perfect example. No creases, the corners sharp, very sharp. And, you know, since the borders are black on these cards, yeah, that would be really, really tough, you know, because they are going to show a ding a little bit better. But there you are in your Charlotte Motor Speedway Media Tour 1990 jacket. Yes. Okay. So we got one card so far of yours. Winston Kelly. All right. Papa Joe Hendrick, Benny Parsons, and Gary Nelson. Not a bad collection there. Okay. All right. So at least we're on the board. <laughs> at least we're on the board with a Steve Wade card. <laughs>
1: now, did I see on X, formerly Twitter, a while back that there was a Steve Wade signed rookie card. that it's a coin for 14 bucks.
0: $14. Wow. I never thought that card of mine would bring that much. Steve, personally, I think you ought to charge a little bit more than that.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I I read up, you know. <laughs> All right. So we have one Steve Wade rookie card out of this box that we got from Bob Laird. We're on our way. Steve, I would be willing to bet that that's the biggest reaction that somebody has ever had to opening a pack of these cards and finding your card. I guarantee you it is. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, this week in our first segment, in the second installment of our interview, Troy Selberg describes a life-changing conversation with a mentor who encouraged him to form his NASCAR exit strategy. He Hmm. also remembers the great Phoenix carburetor controversy and how it resulted in the right sponsor making the right race at the right time.
1: Which made all the difference, I might add.
0: Then, in our second segment, we're going to go back to the July 3rd, 1980 issue of Grand National Scene. There's a story in this issue on Troy Selberg's dad, Irv, and his young, impressionable teammate, as well as news that Ricky Rudd was replacing Dick Brooks behind the wheel of team owner Nelson Malik's cars. And just wait until you hear what Ricky had to say about those cars just a few weeks later. <laughs> <laughs> Let's
1: just say he was not impressed.
0: Yeah. It was not the ride that he was looking for at that time. <laughs> listeners, if you possibly can, please consider supporting us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the same podcast, or if you would prefer to do just a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same podcast or Venmo slash the same vault podcast. And as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American city business journals, owner of the same brand.
3: There was a guy, Steve Toki, who, um, I credit a, a lot of my business acumen to. And, uh, Steve was the brand manager for Gatorade when they were owned by Quaker Oats. And he would come to the racetrack make sure people had hats and Gatorade coolers and Gatorade. So he would come to my pit during the race and sometimes help, like catch a tire that come to the wall. Maybe he'd do the pit sign. You know, maybe he wouldn't. But, you know, through those relationships that we cultivate in motorsports, especially when it rains or. You know, there's time delays, and we just stand around. We get to know people. So I'd known Steve I don't know ten years, and he said, "Next time you're in Atlanta, let's get together." And before there was a racetrack there, um, I went to sign autographs at True Value Hardware at the National Hardware Show. And uh, you know, the guys in the trade show were like, "Hey, man, we're going to the Titty Bar afterwards," and I was like, "Guys." I don't pay girls like me. I just don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I'm not doing it. Thank you, but no thanks. And so I called Toki up and said, Hey, let's get together. And uh, we sat at a little restaurant. And he looked across the table at me and he said, What do you do for a living? <laughs> I kind of laughed. And I was like, That's funny. And he goes, No, what do you do? And I said, You know, I, I take, you know, 300 of the most talented craftsmen there are we take raw materials and we we build a product that goes 200 miles an hour and he's like you know and i said all right um so i take 300 people with the biggest egos in the world there's no college football coach that has anything on me and he's like no and i said dude i give and he said You rub elbows with Fortune 500 people all day, every day, and they want to be you. I said, hmm. And he looked at me. He goes, you don't get it. And I said, no. (laughs) And he goes, I know you don't, and that's why we're having this conversation. And he grabbed the ketchup bottle, and he set it in the middle of the table, and he said, you're going to put that in a Lowe's Home Improvement Center. What are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to call Jeff Ulrich who at that time was the brand manager, DK, one of DK's sons, right? Carolyn and DK, um, who uh, is at SMI now. So um, Jeff has moved up through the sport, but at that time, he was the brand manager over at at Lowe's. And I said, hey, um, I'll call Jeff. It'll be on the shelf next week. And he goes, you're going to call Jeff. Do you get that? Do you understand that? He said, He goes, you can call the vice president of Coca-Cola.
2: He'll take your call and ask you guys when you're getting together next. I go, yeah. And he goes, do you understand that? And I said, yeah. And he goes, no, you don't. He said, you have a Rolodex of corporate America that not will
3: only take your call. will ask when you guys are getting together next. He goes, the deal with Jeff. He goes, if you walk up to Lowe's right now and knock on the front door, it's two years to get to anybody that actually can make a decision. And you're just going to call Jeff.
2: What's your exit strategy? And I said, exit strategy. Out of NASCAR? Yeah. Well, he didn't say it like that. He goes,
3: what's your exit strategy? And I was like, exit strategy. I said, I'm in the upper 1% of what we do in this sport. I go, I'm never quitting.
2: He laughed. He goes, oh, you will. He goes, and what's sad, you don't have a plan. You don't have an exit strategy. And I was like,
3: wow. And he goes, if you'll allow me to mentor to you, I will teach you how corporate America every day shows up in blue jeans, tennis shoes, and a T-shirt, sits next to you on the pit box, and watches you look at people. And shit happens. And they're going, What did he just how did he do that? I'm not yelling, I'm not pointing fingers, I'm not even talking, I'm just looking at people and stuff is happening. And people like Ed Renzi, the CEO of McDonald's, is sitting next to me on the pit box going, How do I get this talent of communication where eight people can reach into a toolbox at the same time, not bump into each other? And all grab a different tool to get something done. And how do I take that discipline into corporate America? And that's how I got into corporate America and the relationships that we gained in racing that we thought were just people showing up as sponsors were truly
2: people that needed the talents that we learn in motorsports. Not about cars going around the track. That's a result. Okay. All right. It's
0: deep. Sounds good, man. All right. So that happened in November of ninety with Mike the next June, still talking about Ricky's team. Yeah. Uh Ricky Rudd and Davey Allison at Sears Point. <sighs> <laughs> I love I love pe asking people about that just to get their reaction, just to get their initial reaction. So the Ricky Rudd thing goes all the way back to uh Carolyn
3: and D. K. Alrich. So uh, Ricky and Carolyn, um brother and sister, right? So it was Carolyn Rudd, and right. so she married D. K. Alrich. So Ricky's first car. First race was at a DK shop when Ricky was was nobody, right? So that relationship with Ricky goes, you know, all the way.
0: Your relationship,
2: yeah, okay, yeah.
3: And uh, so watching the evolution of his professionalism in the sport and his <laughs> talent um, was was really neat. We call him Rooster for a number of reasons, and because there he had a hot head spot. He didn't show it a lot, but.
2: There was a, he was hot headed sometimes.
0: What was your reaction when everything happened at the end? Um, I was, I expected. <laughs> you expected him to get into Davy, or you expected NASCAR to penalize him? No, I expect him to get into him. Okay, all right, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: I can't, I can't help what NASCAR does. I'm not even sure they can help what they do, (laughs) right? Yeah. And I'm not talking despairingly. Right, right. You know, the blind leading the blind, they can't, you know, they don't know what we're doing on our side of the fence, right? And we just kind of laugh at what they do on their side of the fence, right? Uh, It's a double-edged
2: sword.
0: You talked about going back over. Well,
2: what happened that you left the five team? Um, So Gary
3: DeHart took over and he wanted all his own guys. So over evolution, you know, people left.
2: Okay. All
3: right. Right. It's very common in the sport when a crew chief takes over, he wants all his own guys. And um, God bless him because uh, that's how people move around the sport. And that's how we all got talents from different people in the sport is, you know, us moving around.
0: So you mentioned late coming to you and, and asking why you weren't a crew chief. Had that ever been a goal of yours, or did it just kind of crop up in that moment?
3: Never been a goal of mine. Um, I was completely content in everything I did within the sport, proud of you know things we did in the wind tunnel, proud of cars that were put on the racetrack.
2: I mean, I never uh aspired to that um, because i I just didn't, right. I was, I, well, I didn't say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be a crew chief one day. No, never did. And when I was put in that, in that space, um, I truly
3: saw it differently. And it was about people development. It wasn't about, you know, leading race cars. It was about developing other people to be better. And as a team, as a group of people working towards a common goal, we got there. Now, I used a lot of different techniques doing it. And I even talked with, you know, peers now, people who actually worked with me back in the day, who thought I was crazy. And now they look back and they go, now
0: I understand why you did what you did. And thank you. You've mentioned rules a couple of times. Yeah. And you did tell me about getting caught one time with a big carburetor at phoenix yeah who who was that with? so uh that was with uh that was on team Renzi,
3: right? So we had multiple cars back in the day, trying to get into the cup realm. uh Ed Renzi and Sam Renzi had race teams. I had truck teams and and bush teams, and uh I evolved into a team manager at that point. Uh, on the cup side, on the well, it was overall of it. We had a cup team, a, a, a bush team, okay. and a truck team. Right, okay, right? yeah. So I evolved into like a team manager over over these teams. And so we bought some cars from MB2 Motorsports and went testing in in Homestead with Randy Tolsma. And uh right front tire went down in testing, and Randy hit pretty hard. Uh, probably the hardest hit I've seen in a testing. Put the right front tire up in the passenger seat.
2: It was, it was pretty, pretty good blow.
3: And you could kind of look at him at the time and go, Yeah, he's looking at life different, much like yeah. I looked at life different yeah. when we lost Mike. And, uh, as a driver, when you lose that edge, a lot of other things evolve, like the motor's not strong enough, the chassis's not turning. So through that process, we went through some some people, some crew chiefs, and we got to Phoenix, and I had to let the crew chief go before we went to Phoenix. And so I took the, the position as team manager. You know, we just need to get through the season. And we went into Phoenix not knowing that we were going to make the race. We really didn't believe in yeah, we were. It was the
2: team Marines. Ford that we had at Phoenix, and I pulled the engine builder aside, it was Peter Guy. I pulled him aside and I was like, Peter, we
3: put a cup carburetor on this motor. What's it going to do? And he started laughing. He goes, yeah, you're not putting a cup carburetor on that. I said, no, I'm just asking a question. Now This, this is the bush. This is a bush car. Now who is the driver? Bobby? Oh, you- uh, Randy tells me, Okay. All right. right? And I said, if we put this carburetor on there, what's it going to do? And he goes, well, we're not putting that carburetor on there. I said, no, just hypothetical. Like, what's it going to do? And he goes, it's like 200 horsepower. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> he goes, 200. I said, okay, so if I can make this happen, can you get me a carburetor over here? And he goes, you can't make this happen. I go, give me a carburetor. So he went to the cup garage, come back with carburetor, right? So I pulled Ed Renzi aside, who is the car owner at the time. I said, I just want you to know what's getting ready to happen here. We're going to go on the racetrack. Driver's going to bitch about the motor, but we're going to do this. And he had a conversation with Peter and said, it's 200 horsepower more than anybody in the field. So when the carburetor people came around to inspect the carburetor, we did the dance. And the cup carburetor got on the engine without NASCAR seen it and they put a seal on it and they sealed it. Tell me what the dance is. So they take, we take the carburetor off. NASCAR inspects it. The
0: the quote unquote legal car. The legal one. Okay. We,
3: We take it off, right? And they inspect it. They check the size of the bore size. They do their gauges down in it. And then you stick the carburetor back on the engine and then they bolt it down and you seal it. Well if you can distract the guy they swap the carburetor and stick the, the illegal carburetor on right and then seal it but there's another catch to it because eventually they're going to inspect it again right but and we'll get to that right so um we talked about talented people in the in the in the garage and I'll I'll speak more to the crew and how well they orchestrated some of the things that they did talented guys. So we go out on the racetrack and the first lap on the racetrack is this motor won't get out of its own way. And I looked at the owner and the owner looked at me and we just kind of shrugged and went, all right, let's do what we got to do. So through two practices, the car wouldn't turn. It just wouldn't turn in the middle.
0: Right. Now is this with the
3: the illegal carburetor? Illegal carburetor. Okay. All right. He's just like, it won't turn. Well, we're not going fast enough to make the race anyway. So it really doesn't matter if it won't turn or not. It ain't good. So at that time, there were tall springs and short springs. Well, the tall springs had just become obsolete or illegal, and we had to go back to a shorter spring. And Mike Shiplett was the car chief. And as most people know, Mike has moved on to be quite the crew chief, very proud of that young man and everything he's done. And Mike was the car chief. And I said, hey, Mike, do we have any tall springs on the, on the truck? And he said, hey, boss, he goes, you can't put tall springs in this thing. I said, look, we're not going to make the race anyway. We got to get this thing to turn in the middle of the corner. We got to get the driver comfortable. We got to do what we got to do. And he was like, I got some. And I said, all right, put them in. So he puts these tall springs in the car. We go out, practice with these tall springs, and they don't, it ain't make a difference at all. Right? And so really defeated. Like, we're not going to make the race.
2: So we get out on the pit road for qualifying. I'm having a conversation with Randy. Put the window net up, slap the top of the hood, and I go, I need you to drive it in there. I need to drive it in there deep. We got to make the show. Fires the car
3: up. Off pit road he goes. Well, this car's got 200 more horsepower than the field. (laughs) And you can hear it. Singing, right? I'm getting goosebumps right now, even remembering, like thinking back that way. And he come past the start-finish line, and we're standing down between one and two. Because as most people know, back in that day, pit road circled all the way around. He drove that car in there, Rick, 10 car lengths deeper than he had in practice the whole time. The difference is, is he just burped the throttle. And got right back in the gas and that thing went off the corner and I went, oh, shit. <laughs> right. And he came around and the crowd screams and it goes on the pole. And I'm going. We were 42nd in practice for two practice sections, and now we're on the pole. And the team goes nuts. And I'll never forget that Sam Renzi's on the wall. He about falls off the <laughs> wall, jumping up and down. Right. And I'm thinking to myself. Holy shit, I got an illegal carburetor, and I've got two illegal springs in this car. Mike Shiplett knew that the springs were in the car, and he comes over to me and goes, boss, I go, yeah, I know.
2: I said, here's what I need you to do. Give me three people. Jack stands in the jack. We go through inspection. Just follow my lead. Well, thank God we got knocked off the pole when we were like third, right?
0: But still had to go through post inspection. Well, if you had 200 more horsepower than everybody else, what did they have? What were they doing? (laughs) What kind of springs and and carburetors did they have? Right. (laughs) So um, the guys jacked the car up, right?
3: And I'm thinking to myself, this is not going to be good. And I'm not, at this time, I'm really not even thinking about the carburetor. So the seal comes off the carburetor, the bolts come off the carburetor, the carburetor gets lifted up. And at that time, Chip was the NASCAR official. Chip Warren. Yeah. Chip was the guy. Oh, that's awesome. And so carburetor comes up off the thing. Chip puts his thing, his gauge under there, and he puts his gauge under there again. And he kind of turns his head and he kind of looks at me and he goes, what? And I said, I said, what are you talking about, Chip? (laughs) And he looked at me and he goes, you owe me.
2: And I said, thank you, Chip. Have a nice day. And Chip walked off. And I didn't know what that meant. Right. I'd never bribed
3: him. I never. Right. And I was just like, wow. I can't believe he let me go. Right. And it's the relationships we have with our NASCAR officials. Right. Because they're real people. They're no different than us. And about that time, this little NASCAR official comes sliding out from underneath the car that I didn't know who the guy was. Right. And I knew most of the NASCAR officials in any garage area. And he comes sliding out. He goes, we got a problem. And I was like, what do you mean we got a problem? And he's like, the springs in this car. I need the springs out of this car. So Mike pulls the springs out of the car. And I go, what's wrong with the springs? He goes, the rules change. You can't have these springs. I go, when- I'm the team manager. I'm stepping in as the crew chief. How the hell am I supposed to keep up with your damn rules and all the things that you do? And he goes, I don't know
2: to tell you. And he took the springs off to the trailer. And I was like, shit. So all of a sudden, I get the NASCAR official says, they need you in the trailer. And I walk in, it's John Darby, Mike Helton, and Kevin Triplett.
3: And my springs are sitting on the counter. The unholy trinity.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And the,
3: and the springs are sitting on the counter. And Mike goes, we got a problem here. I said, you're damn right. We got a problem here. I said, the United States Marine Corps has just invaded Afghanistan. I've got the United States Marine Corps on my car and I can't take this press.
2: And Kevin Triplett started to speak up and I started laughing.
3: And Mike went, there's nothing funny here. And I said, with no disrespect, I said, when I look at Kevin Triplett, I see a show car driver at Richard Childress Racing. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> so when you have the relationships with these guys yeah. over the years, you yeah. know you just have those relationships. Right? And it got real quiet.
2: And they go, we're in a pickle. I said, yeah. I said, when have I ever been in this trailer? And they said, never. And I go, because you've never caught me. I said, you didn't catch me. I need to get a car in the field. It's United States Marine Corps. And they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put you to the tail end of the field and say that there was some, not illegal, but there was some equipment failures. And you're going to
3: tell everybody that that's what happened. And we're not going to speak of this ever. And I go, thank you, gentlemen. And I walked out of the trailer. And I'll never forget, I walked up to the back of the hauler and they were like, what's going on? And I
2: said, um, we're in the race. We're going to start from the tail end. But we're in the race. What happened? We're not going to speak about it. And I, I really haven't told that story until... Now, to a whole lot of people, um,
3: there were you know the car owner knew the the engine builder knew. Eventually, Sam Renzi, the the other car owner, found out about it. But that was truly the only time that I really got caught, because you know cheating is a past tense word.
2: Oh yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're interpreting the rules. You, you you made it very plain that it's not cheating until you get caught, You're- right? Okay, all right. <laughs> Did Chip ever get his reward or uh, never? He never asked for it. You didn't have to pay, or the team or whoever didn't have to pay any kind of fine. Nope, just had to go to the back of the pack. Back of the pack, and that was at Phoenix in 01. That would have probably been okay Okay, because if that was Afghanistan, that would have been 01. That
3: would have been 01, yeah.
0: This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. Steve, there's a lot of wisdom in what Troy was told by his mentor, Steve Toki, who was at the time the brand manager for Gatorade. Steve asked Troy what he did for a living, and Troy responded, Well, I build race cars. No, what do you do for a living? I manage teams that build race cars. And then Steve was like, Okay. No, read my lips. What do you do for a living? And it was at that point that Steve told Troy, you're hanging out with executives from fortune 500 companies, and they all want to be you. They're watching you and your team's performance to see how it can translate into the business world. And again, Steve, I'm going to equate this to my NASA world. I really do consider the third floor mission control room to be a cathedral. But Gene Kranz, the famous flight director from Apollo 11 and Apollo 13, Gene Kranz calls it a leadership laboratory. Simulation after simulation after simulation built that team into a finely tuned unit. Mission rules were put in place pre-flight for when things went wrong. So when anomalies did happen during a mission, the people in the Moker already knew what they were going to do and how they were going to fix it. And the connections there to the business world are pretty obvious, and the gist of what Steve was telling Troy was pretty much the same thing. Mission Control, Pit Road, and the shops themselves are leadership laboratories. And the quicker that Troy found that out for himself, the quicker that he was going to have a plan for if and or when he left the sport.
1: Am I assuming that Steve is trying to groom Troy to think for himself when he gets out of racing. Was that his goal? In other words, he was trying to help Troy become what he wanted to be, but outside of racing. I mean I've never heard of a concept like that, of somebody approaching somebody and telling them lessons like this. You know, normally the lesson would be here's how you get better at your job in racing. Now he's telling them here's how you do your job or think you should do your job when you get out of racing, right?
0: Well, it kind of goes back to what Troy said in last week's episode, and he spoke directly to his former coworkers in the garage. He said, listen, don't feel like you're trapped in the NASCAR world because if and when you're downsized or get fired or you decide to retire, you still have really big talents that corporate America needs because you've worked in this really high stress environment before and those talents and abilities can work outside the garage as well.
1: Ah, okay. Well, I think Troy has proven that, especially when it comes to
0: bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I know that that was going to be the, the thing that he's doing that sticks with you? <laughs> now I am impressed. <laughs> Steve, one of the most popular things about our podcast is that it does go behind the scenes. And in this interview with Troy, Yeah, you get a behind-the-scenes look at how things sometimes work in NASCAR. 2001 Phoenix Bush Series race, Troy has a problem. His driver, Randy Tolsma, is banged up from a pretty bad crash during testing. They're going to Phoenix, and it's just a little more than a month after 9-11 and just a couple of weeks after the U.S. started bombing the crap out of Afghanistan. And, Steve, who was the sponsor of that team at that time? Now, I know it was the Bush Series. So it was a little, you know, below your pay grade, paying any kind of attention <laughs> to what was going on in the Bush series.
2: <laughs> well, given, who was
0: sponsoring that team?
1: I think that given the situation of the time, in other words, it's just a month beyond 9-11 and we're involved in a tussle in Afghanistan, it's got to be somebody or something in the armed forces.
0: That would be the United States Marine Corps. Oh, that's a good one. So Troy has to get the car in the field, but it's off. So he puts a cup carburetor on the Bush car plus illegal springs. (laughs) And it somehow gets through pre-race inspection. But then after the race, my boy, Chip Warren, the Bush series official who was checking the carburetors at the time, he sees what's on the car after the race. And he's like, you got one over on me. You owe me one, uh, huh? <laughs> but Troy wasn't so lucky with the Springs he's hauled into the Bush series hauler where he is met by the unholy Trinity of John Darby, Mike Helton, and Kevin triplet. And they're going to lower the boom, but Troy and I, I, Steve, I'm not sure if he starts singing the Marine Corps Anthem <laughs> <laughs> from the halls of Montezuma, uh, you know, I kind of see him sitting there in the NASCAR hauler with a bucket over his, <laughs> <laughs> And I'm also not so sure that his argument was that the car needed to be in that race or maybe even more, it would have been a terrible look for NASCAR to disqualify the car that had the Marine Corps sponsorship on it. So the time was disallowed and Randy started from the rear of the field and that was it. According to Troy, there was no fine or anything like that.
1: NASCAR knew exactly what it was doing. You described the situation at the race at the time. Now, let's be real. NASCAR knows it can lower the boom on a car with a Marine Corps sponsorship. No, it's not going to do that. It's not going to let any car with armed forces sponsorship on it not participate in the race. How bad would that look? Now, I'm not saying NASCAR did just to be nice guys. They did it to just be smart guys. They knew what they were doing. They knew the mood of the times, and they knew the fans shared that mood, and they weren't going to worsen any by taking that car out of the race. I tell you what, Rick, they've done it many times since. I promise you.
0: You know, ordinarily, any kind of carburetor infraction, NASCAR is going to drop the hammer on them pretty big. Sure, and the springs, too. But this time it was kind of a pat on the back. Don't do it again. And everybody goes on about their merry way.
1: From the halls of my (laughs) desert. (laughs) Actually, watch the smart move, Rick.
0: Hey, race fans. John Dodson here from NASCAR Technical Institute. NASCAR Tech is open and enrolling, with classes starting every three to six weeks. In our 48-week Automotive Technology program, students learn everything from vehicle electronic technology to diagnostics and drivability. And as our exclusive educational provider for NASCAR, we offer a 15-week NASCAR elective where students learn engines, fabrication, aerodynamics, pit crew essentials, and more. NASCAR Tech also offers 36-week welding and CNC machining training programs so you can choose the path that best fits your career goals. Ready to see how you can get started? Visit uti.edu NASCAR today. NASCAR Technical Institute prepares graduates to work as entry-level automotive service technicians. Some graduates who take NASCAR-specific electives also may have job opportunities in racing-related industries. NASCAR Tech is an educational institution and cannot guarantee employment or salary. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. July 3rd, 1980 issue of Grand National Scene. There's a short one-page feature in this issue on a couple of DK Oryx crew members, Mark Osborne and Irv Selberg. Now, does that name sound familiar? Irv Selberg. Does
1: have a ring to it,
0: Rich. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You've been paying attention after all. (laughs) (laughs) It should because Irv was Troy Selberg's dad. Irv said in this story, I came east for a race here at Charlotte one year and I met DK. I helped DK out at a race at Riverside and he offered me a job. So I packed up and moved here. He later added, my older son, Troy works some around here now as a gopher and races a bike and motocross. When I get the time, I like to mess around with that and be with the other kids too. And in Irv's off time, he worked at a garage that had nothing whatsoever to do with racing that DK also owned. So he anybody had work they needed done on their cars or oil change or whatever, Irv worked there too. But he did say the race car took priority.
1: Well, he had to have racing in his blood just to pack up and move from the west to go to the east and work for DK Ulrich. Now, for me, that would be a very, very nervous situation, making that kind of move to go someplace. I know nothing about, but not for her. That's what he wanted to do. he wanted to race and boy, he went and did it.
0: Well, I think it also says that he was very serious about supporting his family too, that he would work outside the race shop to make that extra cash. As for Mark, who was just 20 at the time, he balked at the idea of one day getting hitched. Mark said, no way. I enjoy the racing and the traveling. I'm too young to settle down and get married. That's no fun. (laughs) (laughs) At 20 years old and
1: working and raising and loving it. Yeah. You got the right attitude there.
0: (laughs) And here is the quote of all quotes, especially considering last week's interview with Troy about Juarez. Irv said, I took Mark to Mexico (laughs) 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 on the way back from Riverside this year. Now that was fun. Maybe because I'm an expert on Mexico. Now, that is presented without comment because I got in a little bit of trouble in the YouTube comments section last week saying that Troy shouldn't have told the Juarez story.
1: But we'll address that later. (laughs) My my question is, what is it in Mexico that Herb is an expert on, if you get me drift?
0: There were two big news stories featured on the inside of cover <laughs> of this issue that featured the headlines Brooks is out, Rudd is in. Dick Brooks had parted ways with team owner Nelson Malik. And while it appeared to be a pretty amicable split, Dick said that he didn't have anything else lined up at the moment for the upcoming summer race at Daytona. Dick said, I'll probably be wearing one of those sandwich signs over my shoulders. (laughs) Worn out race driver for hire. (laughs) (laughs) Now, isn't that the Dick Brooks comment of all Dick Brooks comments? Well, that's
1: one of them for sure. Dick had many of them, by the way.
0: He concluded, all I want is a chance to show I can win. No more, no less. If I can't, I'll quit. I've worked awfully hard in recent years to get a top ride. I just hope it hasn't been in vain. Now, on the other hand, there was Ricky and remember this was in early July. So he's talking about the Malik team having a lot of potential and it just being a matter of time until it's a proven winner. Well, here's the rest of the story. (laughs) (laughs) August 14th issue, just a month and a half later, the inside cover headline reads, Ricky Rudd may quit Malik team for safety reasons. Uh Uh-huh. In that story, Ricky had experienced some mechanical trouble the weekend before at Talladega. And right after climbing from that car at Talladega, Ricky said, if there are no major changes, I'm not going back in the seat. I'm not putting my life on the line. The car will probably go back in the race, but I won't be in it. They haven't worked on it since Daytona, and there's no telling what might fall off next.
1: Man, that's very condemning, don't you think? I <laughs> Good Lord. but. There is an urban myth about this situation. It appears that during a race at Pocono, I'm assuming it's in June, Dick Brooks ran over a creature of some kind, whether it was a raccoon, a you know, a rabbit, something like. that. Anyway, the story goes that when his car showed up the next week for the next race, the carcass of that animal was still in the grill, and Dick Brooks said right there. That's the end of it for me. Now that is an urban myth, but Dick never denied it.
0: You know, drivers complaining about race cars. They're a dime a dozen. Sure. Cars too slow. Just can't get up to speed. Can't handle in traffic. It's too loose. It's too tight. But I don't know that I have ever heard another situation where the driver got out of a car because of safety reasons.
1: And insisting that the team had not worked on it since Daytona, and what piece is going to fall off next? Yeah. No, that's one complaint that is unique.
0: Ricky did run three more races for Nelson and actually qualified ninth at Bristol, but he managed to finish 34th twice at Michigan and Darlington and 28th at Bristol, and that was that for Ricky and Nelson Mallon. June 14th at Pocono, there were some sports car races going on when Kim Jones of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, got the big idea to make his racing debut. Oh, Kim, he takes his Chrysler Imperial out onto the racetrack. He's clocked at speeds up to hundred miles an hour. He's finally stopped when he's rammed by the security car right. and he spends the night in jail. Now, here's what I kind of question. According to the story, it took six laps to stop Kim. So he was either actually pretty good behind the wheel or the security guards weren't trying very hard. (laughs) They were probably waiting to see if he'd wreck himself. (laughs) (laughs) Mike Storms, who was the sports director for WFTV in Orlando, had recently completed the Skip Barber Driving School. So he filed an entry for the upcoming Firecracker 400 in Daytona.
1: <laughs> you gotta be kidding me.
0: However, once Speedway officials looked a little closer at Mike's entry, they noticed that he had planned to run a 1957 Edsel <laughs> <laughs> with the car number 007. And <laughs> most importantly, he did not include the $50 entry <laughs> fee.
1: <laughs> oh, oh Mike was just planning a nice little stunt for his TV <laughs> network. That's what it was.
0: In this week's edition of You've Come a Long Way, Baby, the Retail Merchants Council of Talladega, Alabama, was sponsoring the Talladega 500 Junior Grand Marshall Sweepstakes. The winner would receive a ride around the racetrack before the race, a tour of the garage, and a photo with the winner in Victory Lane. Now, ordinarily, I would probably not mention a deal like this, but listen to this. Why don't you? The sweepstakes was open to all boys, between the ages of six and 13, and all boys, no matter where they live. Steve, I don't believe this kind of thing would fly today.
1: Ah, uh, you're absolutely right. Wouldn't even attempt to do something like that today.
0: Now, also, there was a series of Hardy's commercials back in the late 1970s, early 80s, featuring a guy who went by the name Roadrunner. And there was even a Roadrunner Hardy's die-cast truck and race car. That you could buy. In this issue, writer Pat Howe got to meet and interview actor Phil McHale, the actor who had played the Roadrunner character on the commercials, and he had also been in the One Life to Live soap opera. And let's just say that Pat was apparently quite smitten with Mr. McHale. Pat wrote, I looked up and there he was, the Roadrunner, not the one in the hat either, the cute one, Phil McHale. We had met the night before at a cocktail party, and I had mentioned that I would like to interview him. He was there to ask if I was still interested. When Phil asked where they were going to do the interview, Pat wrote that she said, the holiday inn. Okay. To which Phil replied, sorry, I've already met your husband and he's bigger than I am. Pat (laughs) later added, proving that a guy could be smart as well as handsome, He graduated with a master's degree in political science from the University of Southern California, then went on to earn his doctorate at the University of London.
1: Now, that's impressive. I got news for you. Phil McHale is still with us. He's 83 years old. He did one or two movies and one or two more soap operas while he was acting. But during that time, when Pat interviewed him, he was quite... The high shot phrase is, he had an eye for the ladies, okay? I was talking with him one time, probably at that same cocktail party, and I couldn't get him to pay attention to me because he kept turning his head and looking at the next lovely lady that walked by. So I think old Phil, in a sense, knew what he was doing, if you get my drift.
0: Hello, I'm Terry Labani. Hi, this is Paul Andrews. Hey, I'm Rick Wilson. Hi, this is Morgan Shepard. Hi, I'm Jeff Green. You're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast.
2: Hello Scene Vault fans. This is Brian
0: from Speedway Screens. And if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. Before we close this week, I do want to address a comment that was made in the YouTube comment section last week, and it came from at Presnell 9206 After this interview, my kids will be forbidden to look at this show any longer. Troy Selberg did not need to tell that story. So I am done with your podcast. Art, listen. I apologize if you were offended. Hopefully, our regular listeners will know me as a man of faith, and Troy is a believer as well. However, the fact of the matter is that the wide, wide world of NASCAR isn't exactly Mayberry, and things that are off-color, at best, (laughs) can and do happen. And Steve, we've talked about this before, but I will not censor an interview that we do just to fit my worldview, I consider that to be truly dangerous and I consider that to be truly dangerous regardless of where you fall on the political or social spectrum.
1: If we don't let our guests be candid and honest and forthright, we're not doing our jobs. Our job is not to structure what they say
0: according to how we want it to be. It's their words. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to write a script for somebody then we're just in another podcast and you know, that's as far as I want to go with that. But when you listen to this show, just know that sometimes the stories may not be what you would consider acceptable for children's ears. Enough of the serious stuff. Let's get on to this week's hashtag ask scene vault comment. And it comes from at new market on X. You should totally do historical NASCAR figures as characters from the Andy Griffith show. <laughs> ah, ha, ha. And they included JD Stacy as, and then added a gif of Colonel Harvey. Now, do you know who Colonel Harvey was on the Andy Griffith show?
1: Oh, yeah, with his famous Indian elixir cures all. Aunt B's medicine,
0: Steve. Okay. All right. Yeah. You're, okay. Aunt B
1: got smashed. <laughs> <laughs> Toot, toot, tootsie, <laughs> All
0: right, Steve. So what do you got? What NASCAR figures were what tags characters? Rick Hussen as Gomer Pyle.
1: <laughs> How did I know that was
0: coming? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I liked what Dr. Jerry Punch suggested. Kenny Wallace as Ernest T. Bast. <laughs>
0: Perfect. All right. So Steve Wade. Andy Griffith. Now see. I gave you a measure of respect in calling you Andy Griffith and you're gonna call me Gomer.
1: Remember, That's... Gomer had his own show, okay? I, I see Just where like that, Andy.
0: Yeah, I see where this stands. Okay, all right. <laughs> With that being said, the only reason that I compare you to Andy Griffith was because Andy was the editor of the town newspaper. Can you tell me the episode that we discovered that information?
2: Not
1: really. I know the one where he called Sarah and asked for the newspaper because he found out the secret behind the stranger in town. Remember that one?
0: Yes. I, yeah. Stranger and told him why he We'll get, we'll he was get to the stranger in town. Okay. We'll to, okay. All right. In the pilot episode that was originally shown on the Danny Thomas show, ah. Andy was the editor of the town newspaper. With that being said, if you're Andy, that's got to make me Barney, your loyal sidekick. <laughs> I'll go along with that. And if you had heard us talking before we started recording about my computer and about Zoom, when it comes to technical stuff, yeah, I'm gonna find a way to screw things up just like Barney. <laughs> 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 Ida Compton as Aunt B. Like because Miss Ida kept everybody in the garage well fed. <laughs> And in the original post, Chase Whitaker commented and said, So help me if you suggest Linda Vaughn as Aunt B. Well, oh wow, the, the image isn't the same. <laughs> and there was a color episode where Aunt B wore a blonde wig to impress the visiting minister, but that's as far as I'm willing to take any comparison <laughs> between Miss Linda and Aunt B. Now, okay. Miss Linda was definitely. One of the fun girls from Mount Pilot. That's right. I was (laughs) going to say that. Dell Earnhardt Jr. Opie Taylor. He's just proud to be his daddy's son. That's good. Teresa Earnhardt as Helen Crump. And that's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) Stevie Waltrip. Miss Peggy. Uh Stevie was the perfect NASCAR wife. And Miss Peggy would have been. The perfect wife for Andy, no matter what anybody else says. Right side's only podcast. Rick,
1: I agree with you. That was a very good wife for him. Had it been.
0: Kyle Petty, Rafe Hollister. He may not look like much, but he sure can sing. Sing, Uh, Yeah.
1: (laughs) I think Kyle would like that.
0: (laughs) Now my buddy, Chase Whitaker from just outside Nashville, he compared Kyle Petty to Jim Lindsay, you know, the guitar yeah, player. I could, I see, could see that, but I like the Rafe Hollis a better. I do too. Chase had another couple of good ones Bill Gazaway as Ben Weaver. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> Del Earnhardt as Fred Plummer andor Roadside Neil. Chase is not an Earnhardt fan because Fred and Neil were not good guys on tags.
1: That's true.
0: Steve Phelps. Mayor Roy Stoner. There you go. That's Phelps. P-H-E-L-P-S. (laughs) Phelps. And if you know that reference, you truly are a Tags fan. L.W. Wright, Ed Sawyer. He came into town and acted like he belonged, but nobody knew who he was.
1: That's right. That's
0: right. Bunky Knudsen and Juanita Beasley. Everybody (laughs) was always talking about Bunky and Juanita but I never saw him. Ever saw him. <laughs> Otis Campbell. Don't Line them up and take I... your pick. <laughs> and we will not name names because no. there's plenty of candidates. Steve Wade. Ernest T. Bass. <laughs> Somebody give me a rock. <laughs> Daryl Waltrip and Bobby Allison. Red and Jeannie Boone. All that (laughs) fussing and fighting Daryl probably did all those years is how they really expressed their love for each other. Listeners, if you have any other questions for our Ask Scene Vault segment, use the hashtag, hashtag Vault, and we'll try to get to your comment or question. Hold on a second. Jeannie's making beer cheese.
1: Whoa, you didn't tell me you had beer cheese? I didn't think that would admissible in your household.
0: Steve, (laughs) we had to have a buddy of ours deliver us a can of beer for her to make beer cheese. (laughs) I believe you. (laughs)